Let's come before our God in prayer. <clears throat> the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. O Lord, our God, we praise your goodness to us. You have provided our every need. You have healed our diseases. You've given us life. You have called us to yourself and washed us clean from our sin and shame and misery. How great is your goodness to us. How great is your love. And as we gather around the tables this week with our loved ones and our families, we pray that you would teach us to rest contentedly in your arms, even as the world rages around us. Give us the right words to say, even as enemies seek to devour and to destroy. Set a table for us, we pray, in the presence of our enemies, and cause us to lie down in green pastures, unafraid and unhurried. Grant that we might hallow and magnify your name in all of our words and works. Help us to reflect your truth and your beauty, your wisdom and your righteousness, so that not we, but your holy name be magnified. Cause us to magnify your name with your love and your kindness as we show it to our friends and our relatives this week. Teach us to be at peace, to keep our tongues in check, and may our light shine to all around us. Give us opportunities to be a beacon of hope to our neighbors. Conform us to the image of your dear son. He didn't quarrel or cry out. The bruised reed he did not break. He didn't stamp out the tiny fires of hope in the hearts of your image bearers. Give us that spirit. For we are too often fearful or desperate to neither shut ourselves off or shout to make ourselves heard. Instead, Father, teach us to be like Jesus and rest in you. Pray your blessing upon those who still struggle with the infirmities of the flesh. Those who are overwhelmed with sin and misery, pray that you would grant healing and cleansing, take away shame and hiding, lift up the downhearted, give rest to the exhausted and freedom to the oppressed. Provide for Phil and Rhonda. Pray that you would bring uh, the right medical care for Rhonda and give them the comfort of the gospel every day. I pray that you would bless Roger and provide for him. Help him to sleep at night. Provide for all of our needs and open the eyes to see your beauty and goodness all around us. For the beauty of the earth and for the beauty of the sky, we give you thanks. For the flowers and herbs, for the trees and the beasts and the birds, we give you thanks. For the sun and the moon and the stars as they remind us of your covenant, unchanging, going through their motions because you uphold them and you've made a covenant with them. For our friends and for fellowship, we give you thanks. For those who have our back when enemies attack. For those who challenge us to new perspectives. For those who remind us of your love and goodness every day, we give you thanks now and forever. Bring peace and comfort to the families of those who were murdered last night in Colorado Springs. Bring justice for the victims. And come quickly, Lord Jesus. Give us grace and patience while we wait. Bless the reading and preaching of your word today. Guide my lips and give us ears to hear. Open our eyes to see wondrous things from your instructions. And together, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.
Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. I'll read verses 31 through 43. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Then it happened, as he was coming near Jerusalem, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Both of these accounts are about blindness. Blindness is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Sometimes, Scripture uses the term blindness to speak of a willful refusal to see, a sinful hardening of the heart. For instance, Jesus said to the Pharisees, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. This is a willful blindness that comes on those who arrogantly refuse to see the truth. This passage is not about that kind of blindness. The reason I mention that is because it's common to hear how foolish the twelve were for not paying attention to something that seems so simple. Jesus wasn't speaking in parables. He wasn't speaking in shadows. He spoke very, very clearly and said exactly what was going to happen. And yet the disciples didn't understand The scripture says it was hidden from them. They were incapable of understanding it. We understand it, but we live in a different perspective. We live at the other side of the cross. It's very easy to poke fun of people who don't know the things that you know. Johann Sebastian Bach once told one of his students, What do you mean you can't play it? You have ten fingers just like I do. We all tend to criticize people for not having the sight that we have or the gifts that we have. But honestly, it makes about as much sense to mock the twelve for being foolish for not understanding as it does to mock the blind beggar for not being able to know who was passing by. If the eyes are blinded, the eyes are blinded. Of course, without sin, none of us would be blind at all. But sin is in the world, and now none of us see as we ought. The scripture says, now we see through a glass darkly. Since the cross, we see far more than they did before Pentecost. But we still see darkly. It's interesting to know and to see in our text that Jesus doesn't mock 
the blind eye, he opens it. The first thing I'd like to point out in the text is God's decree. Jesus said that his suffering, including his shameful death, his scourging and being spat upon, was all in fulfillment of prophecy. And we know that the Old Testament prophets did not speak their own ideas, but they spoke God's word that was revealed to them. God pulled back the curtain and revealed his plan of redemption to the prophets, and they spoke what was revealed to them. But God never speaks as one of the pagan gods who looks into the future and guesses what's going to happen. God is not unaware, or God is not simply aware of the future. The scripture teaches us that all things come to pass because God decrees it. So rather than God seeing the future, God is telling us what he is going to do. That's a perspective we have to keep in mind. Jesus, the scripture tells us, was set apart as the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world and the counsels of, the, of eternity by God's decree. When Jesus says he's going to fulfill everything that the prophets said concerning him, what he was saying is, I'm going to fulfill God's decree for me from before the foundation of the world. The Old Testament revealed what Christ was going to do. And in doing so, they were revealing the mind of God. I'm saying all of this because it's important for us to know that Jesus' sufferings and death were not an accident. It wasn't plan B in the mind of God, which is common in dispensational circles today, that Jesus came to set up the earthly kingdom with Israel, and when they rejected him, then he went to plan B. That is not the case. Everything was prophesied from the beginning. His sufferings and his death were decreed by God from eternity, before God even laid the foundations of the world. So Jesus, the word of God made flesh, repeats to his apostles, the twelve, what he had already revealed to the prophets. He's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed to the Gentiles. He's going to be beaten, shamed, and put to death. And then he will rise from the dead. And they didn't understand a word he was saying. How can you understand something that goes contrary to everything you believe? The prophets also spoke of Christ coming in glory. The son of David coming with armies and defeating his enemies and ushering in the kingdom of God where there will be peace on every side. And this, according to everything that human wisdom can understand, is obviously done by power, strength, riches, wisdom, armies, Influence. How can any of that be brought about by suffering and death? The offense of the cross. How can Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of David, be nailed to a cross like the scum of the world? Why would anyone allow that if they were from God? Isn't Messiah the anointed one? Don't the angels have charge over him? Doesn't he have the full access of all of God's power behind him? How can he possibly allow himself to be shamed, beaten, and killed? According to the wisdom of the world, the only way that he would suffer and die is if he didn't have the strength to stop it. And if the Messiah doesn't have the strength to stop the crucifixion, how can he have any power to defeat his enemies at all? 
And that's why when he was nailed to the cross, they mocked him and said, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. To this day, it's still a stumbling block for many of the Jews. A crucified Messiah is foolish to them, just as it was foolish to the disciples. Unfortunately, that same error still persists in the church today. I recently read from a nationally known pastor that kindness and humility, taking the lowest place in serving one another, would not work for this age because the left is too hostile and the church needs to be more aggressive in the face of hostility. As if the left in America today is more hostile than the Roman Empire. Some pastors have declared no quarter November. That is, they will take no prisoners. We need to crush and humiliate all opposition. This is what the world understands. Power, strength, judgment. It's how the disciples thought, just like every other Jew. Which is why they could not understand a crucifixion. The disciples didn't understand that God's power is seen on the cross. Through the cross, the enemy would be completely disarmed because Satan's weapon is shame. Shame drives us to all kinds of wickedness. If only we had more fig leaves, if only we had more power, if only we had more money, if we had a better reputation, if only, if only, if only, then maybe I can convince the voices in my head that tell me I'm weak and stupid and fit only for the garbage dump that I am worth something. Because shame is intolerable. You cannot come to God if you are covered in shame because your greatest fear is that when you get there, he'll say, get out, you're too filthy. And the sword of God's wrath is still blocking the entrance to the Garden of Eden. This is Satan's greatest weapon. We're covered with shame and guilt and filth. And so God comes to us He becomes flesh and unites himself to us and takes all that shame and filth and guilt on himself and nails it to the cross. It's the greatest act of strength the universe has ever seen and it disarmed Satan. What are we afraid of? We're afraid of being exposed as a fraud? Jesus was stripped naked in front of everyone. Are we afraid that we deserve being beaten and spat on? He was beaten and spat on in our place. You're afraid that if anyone knew what you were really like, they would throw you out and have nothing more to do with you. He was thrown out, excommunicated, mocked, rejected as garbage, tortured and killed. Whatever it is that crushes you down, he's already taken it from you. So the one with the power of death in his hands, that is the devil, has no more power over God's people. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us, that is the ministry, the word of reconciliation, be reconciled to God. This is the victory that the whole world is seeking. They seek it through armies. They seek it through power. They seek it through rhetorical skills. They seek it through wisdom, through riches. 
You can conquer enemies with a little bit bigger army. You can arm yourself with the greatest apologetic argument ever and shut everyone's mouths. You can learn how to shout people down on Twitter. You can learn how to own the libs on TV. But what will you do about shame and guilt and death? Those are enemies you can do nothing about. That's the weapon Jesus is talking about. It's stronger and more powerful than any weapon of this world, for it's the power of God unto salvation. The disciples didn't understand that kind of power. It was hidden from them. It was not the time. Why? Why was it hidden? There is a puzzle. Jesus, being divine and knowing all things, knew that the disciples were unable to understand what he was saying. Why did he tell them this without giving them the ability to understand it? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. It wasn't the time yet. If Jesus opened their eyes to understand what he was telling them, would they have followed him to Jerusalem? Would they then have been eyewitnesses? They all went with him. Because their eyes were hidden as to what was going to happen. When they finally understood what was happening, they all forsook him and fled. And then he gathered them back together after his resurrection. And poured the Holy Spirit out upon them and opened their eyes to the mystery. The mystery is that which was hidden in the past that is now revealed to us. Paul said he was given the gift to preach that mystery, to proclaim it. He said, the gift was given to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. When we're proclaiming the gospel, we're proclaiming the gospel to the angels and to the demons and to the whole world. That's what the church is for. We are called to proclaim this mystery. If God hadn't revealed it to us, we would be standing there with the 12 apostles with our mouths hanging open, understanding what he was talking about, not understanding what he was talking about, just like they were. Because Jesus needs to open the eyes. And he will. The other thing I would like to point out is that Jesus did open the eyes of the apostles, but he opened their eyes when the timing was right. Wisdom is a lot. Wisdom is knowing times and seasons. Proverbs is full of that. There's a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to sing. The book of Ecclesiastes. This week is Thanksgiving. Grocery stores that don't understand that will not be in business very long. We're expected to have turkey on Thanksgiving and grocery stores are expected to provide them. Husbands would do well to remember the day they got married. Successful generals know when to attack. Successful restaurants know when the busy times are. Successful surgeons know when to perform the surgery. Successful physicians know when you're supposed to take medicine. 
And the great physician knows exactly when to open the eyes. He knows what information is too much for us and may destroy us. He knows that if the information comes too late, we may rush headlong into ruin. He knows exactly when to reveal what he needs to reveal to us. The scripture never changes, but all of us as believers have had the experience of having our eyes open and feeling stupid that we didn't see it before. But you can't know what you don't know. We understand that we are blind until Jesus opens our eyes. And if we understand that, that should create in us a kind of humility that can only come from God. For how can we arrogantly assume access to all knowledge if we understand that it, with so many things we're no better than the disciples? When I was younger, I was so proud of my knowledge. As I grew older, I realized that what I thought was wisdom was simply blindness sometimes with fancier words. I thank God for opening my eyes to see things more clearly. But as I get older and study the scripture more and more, I realize that there's far more that I don't know than there is that I think I know. The truly blind man pronounces his wisdom on all sorts of things he doesn't understand. But the truly wise man, which I've said before, Proverbs 30 says, Surely I'm more stupid than any man. I don't have the understanding of a man. I'm just like a beast in the field. Do we know the way the body is formed in the womb? Do we know the heart of a person? Do we know what God is doing in our midst? There's so much that we don't understand. And yet, there's a certain pride that comes over the Christian church especially those who speak and millions listen. They now become the experts on every subject. And so you will find a pastor who pronounces the infallible word of God on health care, race relations, viruses, sexuality, the complexities of love, economics, therapy, psychology, what Elon Musk should do, which play the quarterback should run, and on and on and on it goes. And you dare not question them because they have spoken ex cathedra. And the church is full of people who know what the pastor needs to do, what the pastor's family needs to do, what the pastor's wife needs to do, how the new parent needs to take care of the child, how to educate the child, an expert on every single subject because we don't know that we're blind unless the Lord opens our eyes. If we never admit that we're blind... We will never have our eyes opened, and we will remain blind. Thus the account of the beggar in the next section. Whatever issues he had, whatever he knew or whatever he didn't know, he had one very commendable trait. He knew that he was blind, and he knew who could help him with that. If you think about that, the tribulation, the trials, the difficulties that this man had led him to an awareness of his blindness and his need. His next meal depended on someone throwing him a scrap of bread. Even when he cried out, the crowd just shushed him. He understood who he was. He was a blind beggar. How many of you have Bibles that the title of this section is called The Blind Beggar? 
The circumstances of his life were such that it was pointless for him to deny it. He shouts. The crowd shushes him. He's a beggar. He's worthless. He's useless. Doesn't he know he's a beggar? Don't bother the teacher. He shouts again. He doesn't listen. The crowd says, oh, that guy just won't listen. He keeps shouting. They keep shushing him. He didn't shush. He made a scene. He shouted. He risked the contempt and perhaps even the violence of the crowd. Who a punch to get a beggar to shut up was not out of character for a crowd. He shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He probably had no more understanding what son of David meant than the disciples did. But he knew that he was blind. And he knew that Jesus could do something about it if Jesus would have mercy on him. And no one who has ever come to Jesus for mercy has ever been turned away. Ever. He makes a scene. Sometimes it's more important to be faithful and persistent than it is to be proper. Sometimes one needs to make a scene. So he does. And Jesus commands him to be brought. He says, what do you want? Words are so important. God created us with tongues, with words, with his ability to communicate. And Jesus wants to talk to us. So he says, what do you want? I want to see. Open my eyes so I can see. And that's the point. All of us are blind unless Jesus opens our eyes. So Jesus opens his eyes. And he leaps and praises God. If we are believers, then Jesus has opened our eyes to the mystery of the gospel. But there is still so much that we don't know. And the first step of wisdom we need to learn from the blind beggar outside of, Jerusalem, outside of Jericho, crying, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, that I may receive my sight. I'm so foolish. I'm so prone to error. Preserve me from pride, from willful blindness. Open my eyes that I might see. The first step of having the eyes open is humility. Open my eyes because they're closed. We see the same picture in the book of Proverbs when Solomon says the first principle of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. In other words, how can you get wisdom if you think you already have it? The first principle of wisdom is, I don't have wisdom. Give me wisdom. The second step is faith. Believe that he will do it. It is his will that we know him more and more. That we know his love and his mercy. It is his will that we might know the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is his will that we become strengthened with might in the inner man. If only we ask. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. There are so many hindrances to this knowledge though. The first is our assumption that if something is different, it must be wrong. How can you grow if you resist everything that's different? In order for us to understand the love and mercy of God, all of our previous knowledge of God needs to go out the window and we need to learn who he truly is. Lord, open my eyes even if it reveals something that I was wrong about my whole life. 
The blind man thought he knew some stuff about the world, but then when his eyes are open, he sees the world in a whole new light. The things didn't change. His eyesight changed. If we humble ourselves and ask for our eyes to be open, God will do it. But sometimes that makes us very uncomfortable because it reveals things about us that we might not like. But that's okay. We also need patience. We need to remember that God's timing is always perfect because God is all wise. He doesn't give us all knowledge in an instant. He knows what we need. He knows what to withhold from us. He knows what we need and when we need it. The things we think we know now will grow. Some will change. Some will pass away. Some will be replaced by a fuller understanding. And that's good. Because there is no point in our life when we are the grand experts on every single subject. Sometimes someone else will be right and we will be wrong. That's called the communion of the saints. It's God's way of growing us together. Humility and faith and patience, that's the soil that makes good growth, not only for individuals, but for churches and communities. Jesus has promised he can never lie. He gives mercy to all who ask. His love for us isn't dependent upon us being right about everything. He loved his disciples even when they didn't understand. But because of his love for us, he never leaves us blind. He does open the eyes, but he does it in his time. And so we can be patient with ourselves and patient with others. It's like Paul says, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. God understood, or Paul understood that God opens the eyes and that each believer has different degrees of understanding. And so be patient with one another. Be patient with yourselves. Point all to Jesus who alone can open the eyes. But you won't ask unless you humble yourself before him. God gives us all different understandings so that we will listen and learn from one another. And God blinds us in certain areas so we will learn our need to depend upon him for everything. But his love never changes. He will not let us be confounded. He will not deceive his elect. And we can always rest in that even as we grow in our understanding. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who opens eyes. That you don't mock us for the things that we don't know, but you reveal them to us. So give us that diligence to humble ourselves before you, to search the scriptures, and to rest knowing that you know us and that you're drawing us to know you. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes in due time to see the things that we need to see and teach us to rest in your lap for everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.